and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where Teresa waits for Angie to start sucking on her applesauce packet before she starts talking, just to see if she can get Angie to squirt applesauce out of her nose because Teresa's a child. And I would squirt applesauce out of my nose. I'm here for it. Um, Fortunately for me, it was the end. So, ha. Yeah, well, I tried. If this is your first time. I I will. Okay. (laughs) If this is your first time joining us, um, typically. We're monsters. We are. We're into each other, more importantly. Mm -hmm. Um, When we are being monsters, we are typically telling each other stories that we have compulsively been reading about because we are broken humans living in a broken world, self-medicating in a way that makes sense to us and doesn't land us in jail. Thanks, Internet. (laughs) Oh, I had the funniest thing to tell you, and I forgot what it was. Oh, well. Dude, okay. We watch The Curse of Oak Island. I'm... Are you familiar oh, with oh yes. I am fully caught up. Okay. So, we've been watching it since season one, and as the seasons have progressed, our snarky comments have progressed mm-hmm. accordingly, right? Yeah. So, okay. I don't remember what lot it's on, but they found the well, and then next to it, there's the wall, and then on the lot, like, right next to it, they found this other, like, circular construct, and there's, like, a pathway to it, but in the episode, they don't show you the whole thing dug out, they just show you the circular portion, and then the pathway leading up to it, and (laughs) Ian's over here, like, having a complete meltdown because they never finish showing the excavation. Like, can we for one time see the finished product? Right. As as the viewer, right? Like it drives us both best. And I'm like, I don't know why they're not fully they're fully undigging it. And he's like, what what do you mean fully undigging this one? Like it's it's, it's a circle. I'm like, it's a fairy circle. <laughs> they have to undig the rest of it. And he looked at me and he's like, oh my God. Like <laughs> the way that it hit him was just so funny like you might you might be right because she typically he's right he's like oh look that's another ox shoe and it's just like a square Mm. conglomerate of rust right and he's like shape of an ox shoe the next one will be like oh yeah that's the stave off of a barrel from 1752 why do you know what the stave off of a barrel from 1752 looks like yeah because they're showing it upside down at a 90 degree angle like how hmm how do you know? And he is right every time. Well, like the episode where they found they were they were digging that incredibly big hole and they found a bone and they thought, oh, it could be whatever. And he goes, it's a chicken bone. Yeah. And I just kind of looked at Mike and I went, not a finger. Are you sure? And he goes, yeah, it's way too big to be a finger. Think about a chicken bone. Squeeze your finger. And I went, yeah, all right. Okay, so like maybe our husbands bring with them their innate knowledge of the world around them to this show, and they're just applying common logic. You know, but I, and maybe that's my problem. Like when I watch shows like that or Ancient Aliens, I <laughs> do it not to learn something, but to hear and to prove my point. We're going to travel 7,000 miles to the other side of the world. Oh. I will tell you, like I said, we're big fans of the show, but the the stone walkway is what gets us the most. You know, and it matches just like the one in Portugal. Identical. 
Because literally, when you build a stone wall, it doesn't matter. Like a stone walkway, it doesn't matter what country you're from. Yeah, it's still going to be a wall. look the same. Like, and they're not importing <laughs> the rock from Portugal. If they had done that, like, yes. if the sand from these beaches was brought from Cayucas, not Cayucas, San, 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 Cab- Cabos. That's where I was trying to go for. Then, <laughs> then you could go. Oh my gosh. This is Identical. imported sand. Like, I can't yeah. believe this. It's not like a fake Hawaiian beach, right? Like, right. Think, oh, it slays me. That, that That's my claim to. Anyway, I still love the show. No, I do too. It, it's good brain candy when you just, yes. you're not there to learn. You're there to kind of allow your, your mind to unhinge from the rest of the week. You know, you're not unhinged. Probably not the best word for that, but you know what well, I mean. I get it. Yeah. All right. I'm here to I'm here to prove that it wasn't the Templars at this point because they want it to be the Templars so bad. Honestly, yeah. You know, <laughs> like no, it's not. I'm ready for the Curse of Oak Island Ancient Aliens crossover episode. <gasps> oh my god, yeah. Well, you know the one guy, the astrophysicist that was on there a couple times, like a few seasons ago, is now like the, one of the main guys on Skinwalker Ranch. Which I have never seen an episode before in my life, but see the trailer for it all the time. And I'm like, hey, okay. that's the astrophysicist. Why are you at Skinwalker Ranch? <laughs> Having watched Skinwalker Ranch, I was expecting something. Because I, I did. I watched several episodes. Um, I gave up on it. Like, okay. it was not as grabbing as the other, you know, because I was hoping for more X-Files, more like tangible things, not Brian got incredible headache every time he got to this rock. (laughs) Yeah, not selling me on it. We all feel perfectly safe, but we've got these AK strapped to our back. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh. For the delirious, um, I was going to say cows, but that doesn't seem right. For the mad cow disease. Yeah, it turns them absolutely yeah. bonkers. When they start stampeding, the only thing that'll slow them Stop down them. Yeah. Yeah. is I, a hail maybe that's of why I haven't bullets. Watched it. Maybe that's why I haven't watched it. Maybe I mean, also because I just love the cinematography in Oak Island. Like, I'm, I'm here for the drone shots of the island. <laughs> I mean, I'm here to watch a bunch of people with more money than sense continue to blow so much money that if there was a treasure on Oak Island and if they found it, at this point, they'd only break even. They've spent more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm here for it. My jam. I mean, <laughs> and I realize if they ever did find the treasure, I wouldn't uncover it on accident watching episodes. There would be an article, many articles about it. Oh my gosh, yes. I constantly see the, like, you know, the really s- suspect websites that are like two brothers dig up treasure in Canada. I'm like, dude, no. If they actually released that information, it wouldn't be on your sus website. Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling <laughs> that uh, CBC, CNN, they'd all be interested in it. The Associated Press, maybe. I just right. feel like <laughs> there would be a BBC correspondent there. I would like to think so. I mean, my goodness. Maybe they're just waiting for the coronation to make the announcement. What if they do it the day before the coronation to totally steal the thunder? 
Okay, when you said that, the light in your room changed immensely and it went dark like you were being, um, you know, the voice altered. And she saw the UFO, but your voice is really <laughs> altered when you can't see your face. It was like an episode of Unexplained or, yeah. Anyway, it was it was perfect timing. <laughs> I, I, I'm here for that. You know, that's really what I'm doing. And honestly, it's the fact that my room only has un, like filtered natural light coming in. No, no overhead lighting. So my camera's like, what am I playing what with? Are you doing? What happens? As soon as the bird <laughs> flies over a window, it just goes completely dark. <laughs> well, that bird had the most exceptional timing when you said that. Now I have to go watch old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Okay, bye. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been fun. If you've had a great time here. So do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? What are we playing with? <clears throat> Listen, okay. My story is so silly. Do you want a silly story? Are you ready for another silly story? Or do you want to tell your story? Is your about, story silly? How about we end on a silly note? Okay. Think of it as a palate cleanser. So, I mean, okay. mine's not, my mine isn't bad. Like there are silly elements, but I have a feeling that yours could end up being the thing that sets people right in the world and allows them to carry on into the weekend in a way that makes them feel they could, they could do all right. They're, they've I got will this. I will never be able to top Liechtenstein, Teresa. <laughs> never. <laughs> you know, seeing that news article I sent you. So recently, I found a news article that I sent to Angie that had S- Swedish scientists accidentally sent a rocket into Norway. And I'm yeah, thinking, since, yeah, like, what the fresh hell is this? Why is Scandinavia accidentally blowing its each other up like how what like i mean honestly it checks if you think about like the type of history they've had just but friendly way to the neighbor good nature as they send bombs and invade it's like what (laughs) what it was an accident he didn't mean to send the rocket into norway (laughs) but to which again i quote you know the prima donna in uh, Phantom of the Opera. These things do not happen. Oh, but they do. It could happen. I mean, all right. So anyhow, I'll, I'll go first. Do you okay. know the story of Sarah Bernhard? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say the name does not sound familiar. Okay. Um. So originally, I was watching TikTok, and there is a TikToker that his name is Moore. Abraham Piper, and he has a video, Sarah Bernhard takes on the clergy. And it was hilarious. Okay. okay. And it caused me to spin out. And so my sources are NPR's Sarah Bernhard's Dramatic Life on Stage and Off by Glenn C. Altscher. The Jewish Woman's Archives did an article on her by Alana Shapira. The Roundabout Theater Company has one, The Life, Legend, and Legacy of Sarah Bernhard by Elizabeth Dunn Ruiz. And then there's an article on Barron's that's titled Bat Hat Wooden Leg Coffin Bed, Sarah Bernhard's <laughs> Wildlife Offstage by Rana Musul, I'm butchering this, Musulai and Janet McAvoy. I'm sorry, can you say the name of the article one more time? Bat Hat, Wooden okay. Leg 
Coffin Bed, Sarah Barnhard's Wildlife Offstage. Okay, I thought that's what you said. I just... I know, I had, it's, I had, it's word salad. Time. If you hear somebody <laughs> say that to you in outside of this podcast, it have them continue talking, see if their smile is symmetrical on both sides of their face, <laughs> ask them if they smell burning toast. You know, this could be a stroke. Blink twice if you need help. Right, like there's clearly something psychologically off. In fact. Okay. Yeah, okay. So Sarah Barnhard to kind of give you a little bit before I start off, she was an incredibly well-known actress of her time. We're talking mid-late 1800s, right? Uh, Actually, late 1800s. When you think of her star power, one of her biographers was talking about her and said, basically, take Beyonce, take Ozzy Osbourne, take a bunch of these big stars, combine them into one, that was the level of star quality she had. And this was during a time, this was before talking movies. So nobody really had that level of reputation that preceded them. And she just exuded it in spades. Okay. Okay. Dang, Beyonce. Exactly. Exactly. So it's really like she, and when I get into this, you're going to be like, oh my gosh. Okay. I'm excited. I know. So. (laughs) She spent a ton of time cultivating what people thought about her. And one person in my reading, like Sarah Barnhart was known for being rail thin. And that was during a time where that wasn't necessarily like the epitome of beauty at the time. Right. And so when like someone, one of her close friends was talking about her, talking about how much she um dramatizes her life he said she lies like all the time to the point where I, she may not even be thin <laughs> <laughs> like that part like um, cracked me up um uh, question <laughs> but i mean like but he was he was making a joke but just kind of being like look she lies all the time right like she might not actually be skinny that might actually just you might she, just be she, thinking yeah, that yeah um i so, love that that that's that's kind of like an intro to her right now. It, so Sarah Barnhart, no matter who she thought she was or wanted the world to think it was, it it didn't align with the facts to the point where she was constantly making up these these things about her life. Myth was her currency, and it certainly paid off. As close to the 19th century, she was known as the most publicized and richest actress. She captivated the world with her larger than life personality and scandalous es- escapades. Her intuitive understanding of brand management. She plus... went out with her skirts above her ankles, didn't she? Oh, you <laughs> you don't even know yet. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> little shoulder action, mm. girl, girl. She smoked in public. I mean, so her, okay. Let's start with her her life and how she started. Most of her records are. Like we lost a lot of her original records in a fire. Again, okay. time, you know, we lose a lot yeah. of stuff like that. Uh, she was the fatherless daughter of a Dutch Jewish courtesan. A Dutch Jewish courtesan. Yeah. The visual image that I have in my mind right now. Okay. 
Yeah. So she's born in 1844 and she's born Henriette Rosaline Bernard. Okay. Okay. And despite her Jewish heritage, she spends much of her childhood at a convent school, even declaring that she wanted to be a nun. No, she didn't. (laughs) You know, hear me out, because it's one of her mother's lovers, Charles Doc de Mornay the illegitimate half-brother of Napoleon III, who suggests that 16-year-old Sarah's temperament was better suited for the theater. He pulls some strings. Yeah, so he (laughs) sees this early on, and he's like, "Mm, how about no? How about maybe giving, becoming a bride of Christ? Probably not in your cards. Okay. So he pulls some strings, and he pays for her to attend the Paris Conservatory. And she fails to impress her teachers. And so Morney again uses his influence to secure Barnhard or Bernhard a spot on the Comédie Francais, France's prestigious national theater company. Okay. So, you know. Nice to have friends in high places. Exactly. Right. You know, two incredibly good opportunities. She makes her theatrical debut August 31st, 1862 in the title role of Racine's Ephigenie. She was decidedly not a hit, and it's after the curtain call she asks her teacher for forgiveness, and he remarks, I can forgive you, and eventually you'll forgive yourself, but Racine and his grave never will. Her poor poor performance, coupled with her constant stage fright and histrionics, led to an altercation in which she slaps a senior actress in the company. Okay. And uh, at that point, her reputation as a diva is born. I don't know if uh, you <laughs> might have assumed. I I would have never thought. And of course, she is kind of asked to leave at that point. Typically, that's what happens when you slap someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at work. Mm-hmm. And you're no good at your job. <laughs> I mean, typically you have to be a, a, a very good performer to get away with those kind of shenanigans. Typically, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's poor over. The, I mean, <laughs> poor girl or girl who had family members who had money and influence enough to keep putting her in places that she hadn't worked towards. <laughs> I mean... Okay, but either way. fun baby. We got you. Either way. Um, she spends the next few years working on her craft, and in 1868, she has a breakout hit of the revival of Alexandra's Dumas play. Alex has a Dumas. breakout. Yeah, of Dumas uh, plays Keen. <laughs> her skill and box office draw was so great a hit that the Comédie Francaise welcomes her back to the troupe in 1874. Or oh, 72. Okay, so she okay. comes back, right? Like, she takes a break. They kind of quit her for a decade. And then they're like, <laughs> it seems that maybe we might have overplayed our hand. Maybe you've grown up a bit. Perhaps you are good at your job. Yeah, it, but you needed some time to hone your skills. These are things. So she played at least in 70 roles in 125 plays over the course of her career, both female and male. Good honor. That's awesome. Her most popular were her dramatic death scenes. Oh, of course. She played the 19-year-old Joan of Arc when she was 46. 
At 55, she signs a 25-year lease on a theater in Paris, renaming it Theater Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs> I mean, she is all for slapping her name on things. I could tell. I If I had the funds to purchase a theater, I would not name it the Theater D'Angie. But hey, live your dreams. These are things. And mm. honestly, her business ventures didn't necessarily work out well, but she was really good at acting. There you go. She continued her tour of the world late in life, and she even gave a recital at the San Quentin prison. <laughs> I would like to have seen that. I could just imagine the inmates going, who's out in the yard? We've been here for 56 years. We have no idea. What are, what are we? Wait, this is a break from the ordinary. What are we doing? Johnny Cash, what what are we doing? <laughs> Obviously wrong timeline, you know. Nope, Johnny Cash is there. It's okay. just how it goes now. That's fair. <laughs> so all these things are happening, right? She, at one point, absolutely destroys her knee. Hmm. And I'm not saying I picked her because she hit a certain soft spot for knee pain. Um, she you Google famous people who've had knee problems? I swear to you, that's not how it turned out. I just, mm -hmm. I found <laughs> something about her that I really loved. Um, but she ended up like falling to her knees so much during a play oh, that oh, she- Oh yeah, because of her deaths. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I, she ends I'm up excited. hurting her knee <laughs> so badly that her right leg was amputated. Oh. But this no, doesn't stop you. her and she continues to perform on stage. As a pirate? No, standard roles. Good honor. Okay. Right? And as she's doing this, she even performs for troops on the battlefront of World War One. Um, Johnny Cash. Okay. Yep. She walks the line on one leg. She hops the line. <laughs> <laughs> I resemble this remark. <laughs> you have both your legs, though, so pretty soon but you'll be walking again. That's that's the hope. As soon as I get sign off that I can leave my crutches at the door. There you go. Yep. So she's doing all this, especially on stage. She's not using a prosthetic limb. She's relying on strategically set set pieces. And she just kind of like cruises along the pieces like a toddler would before they really get walking going. Okay. Okay. Pull yep. yourself up on the couch. Yeah. Okay. Or... She's carried around on a satin sedan chair in the style of Louis the Fifteenth. Okay, I might need to get my light amputated. Right, like this could end up playing out well. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, I'm gonna need a litter, please. I will say one of the perks of having an extensive knee surgery has been all of my meals are delivered to me in bed. Oh, okay. Now you're just bragging. Okay, until you realize how much crumbs develop in your bed because you can't sit up straight because your leg's elevated. And so it <laughs> pools around your booty. So when you come back from the bathroom and you're like, oh, that is disgusting. Oh, I had spaghetti last night. Yeah, I sure did. Mm. Well, I mean, this thankfully, like spaghetti and stuff like that, that just sticks to your shirt. So you just change your shirt <laughs> after you eat. Um, the problem lies if there's any like cornbread or things like that. And it used to be really yeah, crumbly. Yeah. That's just... Yeah, that's no muffins, for. no muffins in bed. I understand. It's it's so bad. But like I had to explain that to my daughter. She's like, oh, I wish I could have meals in, in my bed. Can I eat meals in your bed with you? And I went, no, because there's mommy's getting a lot of crumbs and 
And I was like, that's why you can't eat your bed. She goes, ew. And I was like, yeah, I know. It's not the best, is it? Kind of gross. Yeah, yeah. you know. Anyhow, yeah. um, Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs> so <laughs> we haven't only... seen each other in like a week, guys. We've I got know. some catching up to do. I know. And <laughs> I wouldn't really talk on the phone when I was all hopped up on all of the myriad of drugs. All of the drugs. I did want to FaceTime her so bad, but I did not. Apparently, I was not as stream of consciousness hilarious as you see some videos of of other people who are coming out of, you know, I was much more stoic, much more, let's get down to business. Can I walk? When's the next time I can have a shower? I I just want to do these things. I mean, that's, that's super reasonable. But I mean, at least when I had like the... The nitrous oxide, when I had, you know, like at the dentist, I started talking and coming up with great things like, hey, before we get started and you pull this tooth, quick question, is there like a national database of dental records for like missing people so you can match the dental records into the thing? Kind of, you know, kind of like CODIS, like there's not. Then how do we match dental records? You have to actually know who... Like, if you go missing, then your husband or the investigators would come and say, Ian, who is Angie's dentist? Oh, it was Dr. So-and-so down the way. And then they go and request the records and get them. It's not like there is a national database where they just go, huh, that molar is strange. That must belong to... There should be. Yeah, right? I feel very un nerved having just learned this because the amount of times you see in the newspaper and then they match the dental records but previous to that we had no idea who the person was like i just feel like if there are a bunch of missing people and we already have the dental records why not just have a shared database and just like fingerprints run them through and see what pops up yeah weird okay anyhow that's what you were thinking about huh but that was during the teeth getting pulled. Um, but not, not like post-surgery. I was just like, okay, so what is this medication timeline? You're telling me, you know, to stay ahead of the pain. What are we playing with? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? That's but, fair. you know, tooth pull, that's a pretty easy goal of life. Anyhow, um, during this time, so Sarah Bernhardt, she's also doing all these plays, right? You know, we're talking 125 plays. She also starred in several silent films. And even though she died in 1923 before talking movies were made, many the talkies, con- the talkies, <laughs> she was considered the most famous actress the world had ever known. And when she died, a million people lined the street of Paris to bid her adieu as her coffin made its way to the Paris La Lachaise Cemetery. Okay, not bad. Right? So now we kind of get into kind of the, the the offstage part of her life that was fairly unhinged. Her coffin bed, her taxidermy bat hat. You know, she had this amputated leg we hit on earlier and she had plenty of lovers. And these are the things that she was known for besides her onstage talents. And I looked up her taxidermy bat hat and it wasn't like a Victorian beautiful thing with, you know, a very beautiful bird with bright plumage. It honestly looked like just a bat 
on her head. Like that's kind of the extent so it's of like the a bat thing. fastener. Exactly. <laughs> like wings spread out. Like it is just there for shock value. That is hilarious. I love it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do what you gotta do, sister. And so off stage at around age 20, her son Maurice is born. And this gives her the reputation of a scandalous woman because she's not married. Oh, heavens. And it's not until she's quite famous that Henry Prince de Ligne offers to formally recognize Maurice as his son. At this point, Maurice politely declines, explaining that he's content to be the son of Sarah Bernhardt. (laughs) Take that old man. Right? Like, and I was just so excited just to have him go, nah, I'm good. I like my mom. She's fine. Yeah. 1878, she gets in trouble for taking a hot air balloon ride over Paris during the Exposition Universelle. She's sipping (laughs) champagne as she sails over the fairgrounds, the Eiffel Tower, and the Louvre. I love that. In 1882, she proposes and gets married to Aristides Demolius, a Greek military man who's 11 years her junior. She hires him to perform with her, but he prefers spending her money and having affairs and taking morphine. Okay. They end up getting separated, but they stay married until he dies of a drug overdose in 1899. So this next part, I cracked up because it's cited in so many sources. She wanted to be associated with the good life, and that included her exotic pet collection, which <laughs> included a boa constrictor, a lion, a parrot, of course. a puma, mm-hmm. two horses, a monkey named Darwin, and an alligator named Ali Gaga. Oh my gosh. So she ends up serving Ali Gaga milk and champagne on a regular basis. The alligator, alligator. The alligator. Alligaga. Oh my gosh. And I wonder, you know that that it's a Victorian piece of art where the woman's riding her alligator? Uh, I don't gosh, know this. I'll have to find it. I wonder if that's based on her. She's Probably. like standing on the alligator, like like her like very prim and proper, and the alligator's just like scurrying about. I don't she know. Has, like reins. I'll have to find it. But okay, so the kind of bummer and like the reason why if you watch behind this or behind this the zoo or the secrets of the zoo at on Disney Plus, you're not gonna see a lot of zookeepers giving their alligators champagne and milk. It did cause Ali Gaga to go to an early grave. Mm-hmm. Apparently there's a reason it's not part of their daily nutrition. Probably not, yeah. Nope. Um, but she also ends up spending outrageous sums of money that paying off her son Maurice's gambling debts. Okay. So, I mean, because like when I told you earlier about the business ventures that kind of fail when she buys that theater, she puts Maurice in charge. And Maurice just, you know. Doesn't get it. Yeah, he's he's kind of young and dumb. Okay, okay. And has a gambling problem. It hints the dumb. Yeah, okay. All right. So over the course of her life, she ends up turning many of her co-stars into lovers. And she was amused to many, including Oscar Wilde, Edmund Rostin, and Marcel Proust. Hmm. But she evolves from muse to maker, developing her talents in writing, painting, and sculpture. 
Oh, wow. So she ends up becoming quite the powerhouse. Louisa Bima, an expressionist painter with whom Sarah had her most notable same-sex affair, was a fan of her work. Bernhardt still has many fans today, and in 2017, a white marble relief of Ophelia that was made and signed by Bernhardt sold at auction for $385,444. Ooh. Dang, girl, get it. Right? Wow. So she she ended up, like, one of the best things about her, she understood that ubiquity enhanced her celebrity and she posed throughout her lifetime for many artists ensuring that her image would be seen all around the world in paintings sculptures photographs and designs and you know those incredible art nouveau style paintings and posters Mm -hmm. okay the artist alphonse mucha he created those for her play like all the plays that she did um victor hugo he had an affair with her. He was 70. She was 27. He nicknamed okay. her the Golden Voice. Which wow. is quite a quite a compliment, especially before the talkies. But again, most of her stuff was done in theater. So this helped. Yeah. Okay. Okay. In 1910, she visited Thomas Edison in West Orange, New Jersey to record her most famous and moving tragic role. It's a scene from... Jean Racine's 1677 tragedy, Phaedra. So Racine probably did forgive her eventually. You know, and that was one of, I'm so glad that you remember that because I was going to call back to that because it was just like, yes, girl, go back to it. Yeah. She also loans her name and image to a real estate venture in Bronx and endorses products from face powders to aperitifs, you know, like the I had to look it up. It's the alcohols that you drink that are supposed to stimulate your appetite. Okay. I just typically keep drinking the same stuff, but I am a low-class swine, so this helps. (laughs) Uncultured peasant. (laughs) You know, I'm true to my roots. Gotta do what you do, you know? One of the things that really cracked me up is when we think about her reputation it really did precede her and it did it in a way that this was before the internet before all of this stuff so when she went on a tour of north america this triggered clergy across canada and the u.s and before her arrival in montreal the bishop of montreal viciously condemned her citing that she's an adulteress her child's a bastard and he doubles down on the fact that she herself is an atheist oh he comes down on the play that she's promoting as irredeemably French. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have never wanted to be anything more. <laughs> this causes her shows to sell out. Of course. And after the tour, her agent sends the bishop a letter. Your Grace, whenever I visit the city, I am accustomed to spending $400 on advertising. As you have done half of it for me, I send you $200 for your poor. That is brilliant. Yes. Oh my gosh. So afterwards, In today's she... money that would be <laughs> um like twenty thousand dollars. Pretty <laughs> much, right? Like that's that's not a small chunk of change. And she says afterwards, she reflect on the anger of the bishop, citing that it enabled her to regain her good humor. That is fabulous. 
And that humor comes in handy when another clergyman calls her the imp of darkness, a female demon sent from Babylon to corrupt the new world. Ah, the whore of Babylon. Comes down again. And so a 1899 biography reports that she reached out to this holy man immediately and said, why attack me so violently? Actors ought not to be so hard on one another. Oh! <laughs> She's got it. Oh my goodness. Could you imagine if she had access to Twitter? Oh, she would she would put some of our celebrities to shame. She would burn this world to the ground in the most brilliant of ways poet the most poetic ways ever like that was that was gold i am in love okay so as you can tell she developed one of the world's first cults of personality and in 1906 a french breeder monsieur lemonine lemoine lemoine i'm going with lemoine he cultivates the sarah bernhardt peony which is the most showy variety of peony. It is white with, or pink with white ridges, very frilly. Okay. Is, okay. Yeah. Um, and in 1960, Sarah was posthumously honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's awesome. 2001, Martha Stewart shared a recipe for Sarah Bernhard cookies, claiming they were as, quote, multi-layered as their namesake. <laughs> That's awesome. And even though she died a hundred years ago in March, most people, or a lot of people still know her name. Um, Because she's the queen of clapbacks. Oh, goodness, isn't she? Oh, my God. I freaking love her and she did this all with one leg well i mean good most of it right like she didn't lose her leg at the age of six i mean she lost it when she's already established but yet you're not wrong and you just think like typically when something like that happens it, up until now when something like that happens you would most of them would have like gone off into obscurity and never we would never know the full story you know what i mean right you so don't lose your leg saw that and then do yeah. a tour of north america and clap back on clergy the whole time yeah like she's freaking legend yeah i have to google her i need to know what her face looks like <laughs> and i didn't include any photos um actually while you're doing that let me pull up her bat hat she was gorgeous okay look at my screen Yep, that was just I just found that photo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely gorgeous. Think of the I don't know if you can Yeah. No, I mean beautiful woman. Good honor and only one leg. She is amazing. Um I'm, I'm now where's her movie? I didn't include it in the show notes. I'm so sorry. This goes up there with that police report that you failed to find for me. <laughs> uh, it's not that I failed to find it. It's that I refused to find it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fail what you never try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love her. 
I want to be as witty as, as to say, well, after all, we're both actors. Right. Oh. And or, I can hear, like, the transatlantic. I know she wasn't American, but, like, the but that accent, you know? Yeah. I oh. loved when she sent the $200 to the bishop. Yes, thank you for doing half the work. Oh, my gosh. Like, oh, that is such a beautiful... Could you, I need to know what the bishop did. Like, could you imagine the, like, he must have been infuriated. But he must also, have taken the Lord's name in vain. If, I'm thinking. And then, but then would you, you got 200 bucks, then she said to put it to charity, right? To give it to, to your poor. I mean, the first $50 you spend immediately on booze to wipe away <laughs> your tears, right? And then- and- once then you're blackout drunk, then then you do that, right? That that's what you do with revenge payments. I've never received a revenge payment, so I was unclear. I'm hypothesizing. I can't say oh, anyone's okay. tried to buy me off. Ever. I could be bought. <laughs> I take bribes. It's fine. <laughs> and Have this, ladies seen... and gentlemen, is why I'm not a police officer. Oh, I can't remember what social media it was on. I'll have to try to find it and send it to you but it's the dad it's it, the dad's having a snack but mom's put them both on a diet and the son finds the dad in the pantry eating like apple crisps and he's like having the time of his life in there and the son goes hey dad what you doing and while his mouth is full he just one-handed takes a wad of 20s out of his pocket and hands the son one of them <laughs> and says what did you see and the son looks at the 20 and looks at him and goes i'm gonna tell mom you were down here having an apple and he goes thank you <laughs> For the whole time, he's just like, like <laughs> the mouth is full. And I'm over here thinking, that kid is running a gamut. Because you know he went up to find mom, like, in the bathroom with a bag of, like, Twix or something. <laughs> I feel called out. <laughs> Sorry? No, you are not. Let's be you honest. You have a lot of 20s in your pocket? You could You could pay the kid off? I mean... Yeah, I mean, so my grandmother used to buy... Like all kinds of really good snacks, but she didn't necessarily want all of the grandkids to like devour them all and her not have any. And so like I would sneak into the kitchen, grab a handful of cookies, go immediately into the bathroom, which was super close to the kitchen, shut the door and sit on the toilet and eat my cookies in shame. (laughs) Do not say shame. You ate your cookies in glory. (laughs) If anyone had opened that door, the regret would have been immediate. (laughs) I love it. That makes my day. Not that you would regret it, but the image that I have of a child version of you hiding in the bathroom with a handful of cookies. (laughs) Like the time I found Owen behind the rocking chair eating the rest of my mint Milanos and having the audacity to blame me for them being all gone. I kind of like that move. That's a a power play. He was like four tops. No, I want to see. Maybe he was like two. He's got a soft spot for chocolate mint too, right? Okay, so I fully understand this and I endorse it. So we have a ton of chocolate mint in the house all the time. Right. And he loves mint Milano's. He knew I had just purchased some. We had opened the bag earlier and you know how they come like four to a little. Yeah. Okay, so we had eaten the top one. So he had two, I had two. We closed the bag and go on with life. We eat dinner. At the end of dinner, he's done eating. He says, can I be excused? He gets up and he leaves. It's quiet for a long time. 
And I look at Ian and I'm like, you know, he got up pretty quick. I wonder where he went because it's awfully quiet. I'm thinking maybe he went to sleep because he's notorious for just being like, all right, I'm going to bed now. Irish goodbye. Good night. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I can see out of the corner of my eye, like the chair moving just a little bit. And I leaned over the back of the chair and he held the empty bag up and looked at me and said, it's empty. (laughs) As if I can't see all the wrappers around you, buddy. This is this isn't my fault. (laughs) But I was definitely to blame that day. I mean, I've blamed you for I don't think I have blamed you for much. I mean, I'll take it. I'm pretty good at it. That's fair. (laughs) Oh, my word. That is an adorable story, though. He's so cute. I have a picture of the cookies all over his face. Like, you know, can't see anything but cookie. I will say that is probably why we have so many more pictures of our children as younger children than older you, you take a picture of your kid covered in makeup or cookie crumbs, and that is an adorable mistake to take a photo of. Mm-hmm. You can't take a picture of child's first car accident. <laughs> um, No, unless they did it in a humorous way. And they're safe. Point, yeah. And they're safe. I would be like, Ethan, what have you done? Like You're the kid with his dish. head hung in shame, fire oh. hydrant broken, water cascading <laughs> over their head. Fire crews running around giving him the dirty look. And, and like one guy just with his hand on his shoulder, like, it's okay, mate. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can't can't really take pictures of that, but no. you can get some doozies. I've got some good ones. Ethan's always been the one, like the runner. Like, you can't get him to hold still long enough to get a picture, but when you do. The good one? They're, they're pretty, pretty classic. <laughs> Little stinker. Do you want to hear my story? Do we have time for my story? It's not terribly long. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I'm going to start off with uh, with December 1941. Oh, you want my sources? I mean, gosh, yeah, okay. was, I, was, was I saying sources with my eyeballs like that? <laughs> it, was, it was the eyebrow twitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, a few of my sources are an article on theatlantic.com called Old War Tech. Old Weird Tech, the Bat Bombs of World War II. Oh. Warfarehistory.com. Um, the Air Force website on this day in history's article. Uh, New York Times has a, uh, it was a university press's Bats Away, an honors library article. The army.military article bats over Tokyo. Militaryhistory.org back to the drawing board bat bombs. Now hold on. When you said bats over Tokyo, my brain immediately started playing bombs over Baghdad by Outcast. Okay, you're you're in the right. Just keep that playing in the back. Okay. Just, just keep it playing. Um a JSTOR.org article and the Air and Space Forces has a, has a great article on it as well. So my story starts in early December 1941. Does this ring a bell? No. And I am so excited because it sounds so incredibly Silly. up there with like the unknown bombing of Brookings, Oregon. 
<clears throat> it, yeah, okay. Same. So a dentist from Pennsylvania called Lytle Doc Adams is on vacation in the Carlsbad Caverns, New Mexico. Doing what everybody does when they go on vacation to the Carlsbad Caverns, he is admiring the caves. More specifically, the bats. Later on, when he's talking about the bats, he goes on to say that he had been tremendously impressed by the flight of the bat. But then, on December 7th, everything changes. Adams turns on the radio to hear that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. So he starts plotting. On January 12th of 1942, just a little more than a month after the attack, he sends his plans of calculated revenge to the White House. Because that's what you do. Could you imagine how many plans are still going to the White House? I'm thinking there has to be a whole office dedicated to this. However, he gets his idea in front of the president because he had previously worked on a another kind of inventive a little bit off the wall type project for the postal service with mrs eleanor roosevelt herself okay so he's got some pull this isn't coming from just somebody's basement dweller no not not necessarily a basement dweller but also like he was only acquainted with miss roosevelt because of this former idea that he had submitted to the postal system she was interested in it wanted to know more okay it ended up not going but the essential essentially the initial idea was that you would have um like our amazon prime drones would airplanes that could pick up and drop off mail at every home without landing they had Mm -hmm. like this arm thing that reached down and got into the boxes and things like that it obviously did not take off but, bum, bum, bum. That's real poor pun, Angie. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't even trying to be punny. Um, Miss Roosevelt was interested, so she wanted she wanted to see how how that played out. But anyway, um, his current wait, wait, idea. I, hold on, I just want to realize we're talking about drones back in mail delivery yeah. drones in the 40s. In the 40s, but not dr- like drones like we see today. His idea was more of an airplane style like it just never landed i mean okay so he's not too far off but good grief that's actually like brilliant quite far ahead of his time yeah the guy's on to something i'm just not sure exactly what he's on to and on something maybe <laughs> so he senses he sends his ideas to the white house <clears throat> and his idea can only be described with a real solid WTF. His plan, and as he puts it in the letter, states that if they could figure out a way to arrange tiny time-release incendiaries to bats, they would then be stuffed into their own compartments on a, like, dud missile, and then dropped from an airplane. The bats? Yeah. You know, this has given me some Olga of Kiev vibes. You know, when she took the sulfur... That is literally what I I was gonna say that in like three sentences. Because <laughs> okay. same same idea. I'm thinking he must have known about Olga of Kiev, because like on point, same idea. Um, only not birds, bats. But his idea was that the when the bat dropped from the plane, it would immediately try to hide. 
right and go roost itself in the eaves and then the incendiary device was which was on a timer would thus create 40,000 little fires in a you know his his whole goal with this was to cause massive chaos and destruction with the least amount of loss of life cuz he wanted to destabilize the Japanese and he wanted to end the war but he wanted to do it without civilian casualties and so bombing residential areas in Tokyo was the way well he thought that if he if they were if it was via fire and not just like a bombardment but tiny fires everywhere that would eventually burn the city down the people would be have a chance to leave okay they could evacuate is what he's thinking anyway all right all right um, but at this time, Tokyo is like plywood and paper, so <laughs> they would have there would have probably been some some significant loss of life, but yeah, at least in my opinion, but maybe less than I any mean, other yeah, means. Because I've which... lived in a two hundred year old Japanese house. Yeah. Okay. So you know. Exactly yeah. Like what we're we're dealing with here. Um. <laughs> So, again, he his plan is to stuff them in the little compartments. The compartments are going to open up. The bats are going to drop out. Then they're going to roost. Um, and, and in doing so, hiding in the nooks and crannies would cause massive fires everywhere. His letter goes on to say things like this. I got this portion from warfarehistorynetwork.com. Dear Mr. President, wrote Adams, I attach hereto a proposal designed to frighten, demoralize, and excite the prejudice prejudices of the people of of the japanese empire it's a practical inexpensive and effective plan adams theorized that airplanes could carry millions of the winged fire starters to their target okay i'm glad that's where you went with it because i was just dear mr president i've enclosed a bat (laughs) yeah yeah i mean (laughs) that would have been the far way to do it um the Air Force Test Center web website, which assures me is a real website that is in fact run by the American government, like that's what the website says, and it makes me laugh. You know, I do think you protest too much. Like something tells me it's really a 16-year-old downing some more Mountain <laughs> Dew and Doritos. While sitting in his mom's basement. Um that so he, they because I, I wanted to find a copy of the whole letter. But unfortunately, was unable to find that. But several sources had chunks of the letter. Okay. So, um, he later he, later in the letter he states that bats were the lowest form of animal life, and that until now, reasons for its creation have remained unexplained. He goes on to say that he believes bats were created by God to await this hour to play their part in the scheme of free human existence and to frustrate any attempt of those who dare to desecrate our way of life. But the humble bat has so many uses. Like, there's so many different species. They do so many things. They consume so many bugs. And, like, without bats, our ecosystem is going down. Yeah. And I only know that because my son went to a STEM academy and we learned about bats. Because cool nighttime field trips. But anyway. (laughs) um, And, of course, you know, the president takes one look at this and says, this is batshit crazy. And he tosses it out the window. That's no, better. That I, I thought you were going to be like, bye, Joe, this is genius. Well, that's no, that's exactly actually what happened. The president passes the letter through his 
coordinator of information, Colonel William J. Donovan, saying, and quote, this man is not a nut. It sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but is worth looking into. And basically greenlights the project. Meanwhile, some staff member in the DOJ is just like, all right, all right, all right. We got our funding for some bat bomb, boys. I've been waiting for this one for years, fellas. Get the nets together. On on our DOJ bingo card, bat bombs <laughs> has been activated. If you have bat bombs, you can mark that off. That Exactly. And when you mention the DOJ, while they are not mentioned in my story, exactly, almost every other department of the military is. Right. Initially, it is headed by the Air Force, and then it does a little stint um, with the Army, and then a little stint with the Marine. So there <laughs> is some um, collaboration, is what I'm hearing. If you will. That, that's and what, I like that's how it ends with the Marines, because I feel like that is the common truth it it goes there and that's where it ends yeah um so basically the the plans are like this the bomb's about five feet long this is the idea okay made of with a sheet metal tube holding 1040 bats in 26 trays that are roughly 30 inches or 762 millimeters in case you're curious in diameter the incendiaries would be adhered to the bat's chest and then this is where it gets pretty Monty Python-ish. There was some debate about how much weight each bat could carry given their size. The <laughs> unladen swallow. That, that is all I could think of was like that conversation. Oh, it could have been a European bat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that goes, that's a huge por portion of their R&D is how much does a 12 ounce bat, how much could it carry including the harness or whatever devices used to to hold the incendiary how how can that work um could you imagine being the person needing to make a million tiny little backpacks for bats? I can because um i'm gonna tell you about his team that he assembles in the midst of this so remember this project is headed by a dentist from pennsylvania <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of word salad <laughs> yeah pretty much um i just have to say this part really quick because the thing attached to the bat is it's a fashioned napalm filled cellulose capsule he calls it the h2 unit um, writer Jack Koffer, who was actually, hopefully I'm saying that right, Koffer, was actually an intern on this project when he was in high school, who later goes on to write this, write a really great book about it, made this statement about the device. The incendiary was little, about as big as my forefinger to the second joint. Okay. So, so yeah. Okay. So now that you know what the bomb looks like and um, what the incendiary looks like and that it's filled with napalm. Um, and this is the first use of napalm. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, at least to my understanding, the way that the way that this reads, he had to come up with something that was a little bit more stable. Is not the right word, but they went through other options before they got to napalm. That would be a lab I'd want to do be a part of, right? Um, 
So initially, the air site, uh, the air force is given oversight, and here's the team that Mister Dentist from Pennsylvania Adams creates: Doctor Jack von Bloker. He's a mammologist from the Los Angeles County Museum. Lieutenant Tim Holt, who is a pilot turned movie actor. The brothers Bobby and Eddie Harold, an ex hotel manager and a workout king, a body bodybuilder, if you will, um, respectively. Uh, Bobby was the hotel manager. Eddie was the bodybuilder. Wait, ex-gang- wait. So hold hold on. Is he just getting all of his buddies from poker night together? Is that what this is? Let me let me let me give you the roundup, and I'll tell you what Koffer has to say. Koffer, excuse me, what Koffer has to say about this team. Okay. Ex-gangster Patricio Patsy Batista, who claimed to have worked for Al Capone, and another set of brothers, the unassuming Frank and Mark Benish, Ray Williams, who was a lobster fisherman turned Marine, Dr. Theodore Pfizer. None of this is making me go, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that totally makes sense. This person right here that I'm about to note is the only person that makes sense besides maybe the mammologist, Dr. Jack Vaughn. Now, what is a mam? Oh, like a mammologist, like a biologist studies mammals? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dr. Theodore Pfizer, a Harvard chemist and inventor of napalm, would join the team later. That one makes sense. Okay. All right. So finishing up this roll call were two high school students that were the assistants from Von Bloker's B L O E K E R lab. I don't know why I couldn't say I could say that all week until today. From Dr. Jack Jack Von Bloker's lab, Jack Coffer, who later in 1992 writes a book about his time on the Bat Bomb project, which gets named. Are you ready for the name? No, 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 no. Project X Ray. I don't, nah, I mean, but why? It's not, why X-ray? I think because of echolocation is my thought, but um, I don't know. I love the name interesting. Choice. I mean, it is fun, but I just don't understand the relevance. But anyhow, yeah, the, uh, maybe you know, the Project whole point Paperclip is to throw people didn't... off. Yeah, po- <laughs> didn't have anything to do with paperclips. <laughs> well, actually, the paperclip one, it was so, like, when they redacted the files, they would just pull the paperclip and separate them. And so your only real clue that there was additional information that you were missing was the paperclip invitation. See, there you go. So that Um, one kind of makes sense, but... But only after the fact. (laughs) Someone was really thinking ahead with that name. But X-Ray, I'm not really really sold on. I think we could have done a couple more rounds, you know, gotten some additional input from... You know, I have a a feeling we were not workshopping names. Again, this is where I come out overly invested in my career and talking about, you know, kind of overly you... corporate with this. Yeah, they were not totally worried about that. They were trying to stop a war. <laughs> I just figure if you're going to collaborate with so many different groups that you could come up with a name with more relevance than X-Ray for bat bombs. You know, you're probably right. But All right, I, anyhow, love I love the name Project X Ray. It is it cool. Doesn't imply anything that is happening. <laughs> it just adds to the word salad. So carry yeah, on. It absolutely does. Um, excuse me. So uh, Jack Coffer later in 1992 he writes a book about his time on the project, and the other high school intern was called Harry Fletcher. WarfareHistoryNetwork.com says that. Quote, most of the team members enlisted in the Air Force for the duration of the project. 
um, Jack Cofort goes on to say that he knew, so he was 17 when the project started. He knew his 18th birthday was coming. He knew his draft was coming. Mm. So it made sense for him and Harry to join the Air Force at the time and enlist to work on this project before they were drafted into active right. military yeah. service, right? Okay, that way you've so, got a bit more control. Right. So he's he seems like he really kind of enjoyed the project, kind of enjoyed the silliness of it, and the, the project as a whole was really fascinating. Um, <clears throat> Warfare History Network also says this. Adams, the dentist, was totally aware of the prestige and political value of the military rank, so he unilaterally promoted many of his team to acting non-commissioned officer status. <laughs> because I guess you can just do that when, when you're a dentist from Pennsylvania who gets a, a weird idea about bats. <laughs> I want to rethink a lot of my life choices now. Right? Um, Jack, the author, goes on to say that... <laughs> He believed that Dr. Adams, the dentist, chose his team on the idea that he would that they would be loyal to him. And to speak to the eclectic group, Jack also says, quote, he chose them more for personality than technical expertise. It was a very oddball team. Poker night yeah. friends? I'm thinking poker night friends. Yeah, this is what it this is what it sounds like. <laughs> right? Um Jack goes on again to say that he, quote, uh, he's saying of Dr. Adams, a, he was a very appealing character. He was always happy, always jolly, and able to talk to anybody and immediately engage them. He could talk to some old desert rat as quickly as he could a, a major general and win him over. That's why I think he succeeded in getting everybody to listen to his crazy idea. I mean, he's a <laughs> dentist. So, like, those are the best conversationalists. You know, <laughs> I mean, they stick all your, one-sided. <laughs> they stick their fingers in your mouth and you're like, you know what I've been thinking? I've got this great idea. Let me just run it by you. You're a captive audience anyway. Let me hit you right. with it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to workshop this. as I'm, But as not I'm, the name. But not the name. We're not going to workshop the name. <laughs> but what if, just hear me out, you know, we took these little bets. Mm. Gently, gently gum my finger if you think that's a good idea. Oh, you do. Have you heard of old Kiev Kiev? Because I feel like, I feel like if you did, you'd, you'd agree with me on this. It's a, it's right. a great plan. Yeah. Um she's a patron saint by the way. So imagine what I could be. <laughs> oh man, I cannot wait to see what happens in the next couple hundred years. Um. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to canonize a new Catholic saint, boy, we have one coming up for you on this next episode of Unhinged History. I really want to put I'm going to build a meme of Olga Kiev and, and Dr. Adams. It's going to be amazing. I'll I'll get you back with that. All right. That's um, all I need. <laughs> now that you know about the team, um, and you know about what the bomb was supposed to look like, let me tell you how it was supposed to work. <laughs> Once captured, the bats were placed. So this, this quote, this is a quote from militaryhistory.org. Once captured, the bats were placed in refrigerated trays as cooling them forced them into a state of hibernation in which they were docile and did not need to be fed. Okay. Um, one of the problems that they had to overcome with this is that often when attaching the incendiaries to the bats, the clips that they were using, they were like a, 
surgical clips and they would attach them to the chest of the bat um the bat's chest skin was really thin and so it would often rip so they had to come up with um something better something a little bit more humane for the bats which i think is awesome even though they're flying drop napalm on a string attached you know yeah it's look, they it's, did. it's not the best solution. It's like, not the best solution. It wouldn't fly today and it barely flew back then. They made this. Are you really not trying to make all these puns? I am really not. Here they're just happening. <laughs> <laughs> um they did say, because I guess there was some um clap back about clap back. Uh-huh. I'm joking. I pushed that one. I pushed that one too hard. Um I'm trying to think. Oh gosh, I don't know what the proper term is, but there was some there was some hate mail, for lack of a better word, about using bats who can't consent to this. Right. Um. So they made the statement that they believed the bats would have ample time to get the incendiary device off of them once they started roosting. That they would chew right through the string and leave the device where it was and fly somewhere else. But it's not like they actively tested that theory. I'm I don't assuming. Think so. I, okay. From what I can tell, no. I genuinely think that this was just like a way to calm the so people bat, that did know about it. Bat Bomb 2.0. We're gonna need to workshop the name of the project. We're gonna need to do a little additional research to see if put cute little uh, backpacks that come off on them, like like a cat collar. They're not designed to stay no. on. They're designed to snap off. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, so that being said, now that you know that they had a, a little bit of some some issues, allow me to tell you about how epically some of these tests failed. Oh. <laughs> um, on May 21st in 1943, some of the bats were successfully laden with dummy bombs. They were packed into the hollow cases and dropped from a height of 5,000 feet. Okay. However, at the critical moment, the bats, which, you know, are chilled, so they will be chilled, right. literally, um, didn't wake up, and they all fell to their doom. Oh. At this point, secret tests at the new auxiliary air for- airfield at Carlsbad also had similarly upsetting results. Um, when the bats did awaken, their, their cargo was a bit too heavy, and they cannot fly very far. Luckily... That that should have been tested previously. Previously, right? Luckily, only carrying dummy bombs, most of them were found later underneath and in the roof of the building from which the tests were being conducted. So those ones didn't die, they just went and hid. Um, But by this point, 6,000 bats had already been used in the experiment. Time and money are starting to run out. We are still trying to find a way to end this war. Come on, let's get it together. Um, so the so the R and D team, Doctor Doctor Adams, the dentist, and his friend, the chemist, and the rest of this ragtag group, release a statement stating that they are working on a better time delay fuse and a more effective parachute parachute guided container. I feel like this is the perfect reason that somebody comes up with the idea and another person takes that idea and puts together their own team. <clears throat> Hold that thought. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, 
after oh and so and a more effective parachute container new clips had been designed for further testing that clipped onto the bats chest so they would not have so many problems both the bats and the and the event um however after a pretty messed up test under the watch of military top brass which involved bats escaping uh they burned down most of the buildings in the carlsbad auxiliary air force See, it works. It works. Yeah, totally works. So this is a um, point example. Like, I mean, sure, it it's works. a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a bit of paperwork. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so they burned the airfield down and also destroyed a huge portion of the test materials. At this point, the army is like, nope, we're done. So it shoots its way over to the Navy. <clears throat> so we're going to put the bats on boats. <laughs> We're gonna put the bats on boats. The Navy has a little bit more success with the idea in nineteen forty or in nineteen forty three using improved bombshells. However, it was discovered that this so far fruitless two million dollars had already this fruitless project at this point two million dollars had already been spent, and R and D tells them that this project won't be complete and ready to go till at least mid nineteen forty five. So you're saying we've got some time. So so we've got some time. Okay. Yeah. Um what I forgot to mention and quite possibly my favorite part of the story is when they destroyed Carlsbad Air Force, they also lit the car of the general on fire while <laughs> they were there. That would be the terminating <laughs> factor. I right? Okay. So um after this, the project was canceled in nineteen forty four. But with the army Funny enough, though, but that's not the Navy. The Navy kicks it and they're like, oh, well, I mean, nope. the Navy had just they had marginal success. And so by the time the Navy had their their successes, two million dollars had already been spent in the 1940s. OK. And we need to move things along like we're facing some problems in both theaters. We've got to come up with something better right. than bat bombs. However, <laughs> Warfare History Network has this delightful quote from um, Dr. Adams of The Dentist. I have to just keep reiterating that he was a dentist because it's so silly to me. Right. After a trip to Washington, D.C., Adams remarks, quote, Some general I met regarding appropriations confused our secret project with another secret project that's apparently going on somewhere. It's the silliest nonsense you've ever heard of, end quote. Do you want to know what that nonsense was? Yes. It was the atomic bomb research underway at the Los Alamos in New Mexico. Those silly heads. Big They don't even use bats. They don't even use bats. Not even pigeons. But if you've seen these bats, these bats are, like, look, they're furry. They've got slimy, clear wings, like not clear, but, you know, transparent wings. They see in the dark. They eat mosquitoes like they're super useful. At this time, and I was going to save this, but um, I I don't know a ton of information, but I, I I one day will tell this story. At the same time that the bat bombs were being developed so were 
pigeon guided bombs because pigeons are homing birds much yep. to the love of olga of kiev yeah. no I've, I've heard about the pigeon <laughs> bomb project yeah so at the same time of the pigeon bomb project the bat bomb project was going on in new mexico but so was the atom bomb the author jack who was the young man that joined the air force in high school right before he turned 18 he mused later that there was no point in fi- in fiddling with bats when they already had something like the atomic bomb. And that's why the project was canceled. It's because how many bats will it take to carry Big Boy? A lot. Because they can only carry about 15 grams each. We just we just couldn't get our hands on enough bats is what I'm hearing. Well, you know, the the... Nay Cave in Texas has something like 20 million bats. So I don't know if 20 million equates big boy, but or little was it fat man and little boy? You might be right. So I think it's fat man and little boy. I yeah, probably conflated them. The, I'm unclear what the weightage of of the the atomic bombs were, but um that is very Monty Python-ish as well. <laughs> <laughs> to get the image of bats carrying them. I feel like there could have been more problems with that. However, one of my... I'm going to end on these two things. One of my favorite headlines from this entire thing is the El Paso Times has an article called <laughs> Carlsbad Cabin Bats Almost Drafted in World War II. <laughs> mm. Like, could you imagine picking up the newspaper and that's what it says? Bats are almost drafted? But they were drafted. I would say at least 6,000 had been drafted. Um. How, well, they were not all drafted from the Carlsbad Cavern. They determined that the caverns in Texas had a much bigger colony to work with, so they took most of their bats for the project from Texas, not New Mexico. Okay, fair, fair. Um, following the war, according to warfarehistorynetwork.com, some of the members of Adam's team, I know, I kind of know a little bit about what happened to them. Um, Jack, who was the high school student that was part of the project, who becomes the author, all becomes also a successful Hollywood cinematographer. Uh, Adams continues to pursue his lifelong love for inventing contraptions to benefit the populace. In 1946, he, <laughs> with the backing of the government, Adams jumped in an airplane and scattered synthetic grass-growing pellets over the Papagoa Indian Reservation in southern Arizona. He wanted to reseed and reforest tired or burned-out areas. That's actually genius. Right? Um, He also, and, and this I think is the best way to end it, he also was working on a project to... um. Create fried chicken vending machines. This man is all over the place. That is so unsanitary. Machines. You think? I mean, like, and because I'm highly suspect of the coffee vending machines. Fried chicken. You know, like, why? What do you call that thing? Food poison ink? Like, you know, I, I'm thinking that's probably why the project was never. Uh, <laughs> it didn't succeed. The salmonella fryer. Oh, there you go. Yeah, do you think people would try? People would try it. Never mind. I don't need to ask that. People. Would yeah, try no. It. There, there would. Yeah, and it it would shut down because they would go bankrupt because of the lawsuits. So fast. But you have to remember, this is the '40s and early '50s, so maybe curiosity would have beat it out. 
That's I mean true. I mean smoking took off. And... See? <laughs> <laughs> smoking and vending machine fried chicken. I just love I think this story is so oh, this story was shared with me um by the husband whose co-worker found out about our podcast and was like, okay, but does she know about this? So I had to look at now, and when I, I found out that he was a dentist who wanted to invent a fried chicken machine, but instead created a bat bomb system, I'm, I'm here for it. Could you imagine that poor dentist's wife? The whole time. I've been thinking about her the whole time. It's <sighs> like, okay, but this is better than that time that he tried to powder lemon juice and use it as a panacea from everything from major disease to eliminating body odor. Better than that. Better than that. Smell like lemons. Oh, I love the smell of lemons. Could you imagine being his children? I need to know now if he had children because I feel like so much of his time was spent on these projects. He may not have had children. (laughs) You know, this is honestly like chitty chitty bang bang. When you see the house that the main characters live in, and it's got the machine, like the Rube Goldberg machine that like makes breakfast in the morning. Yep. That is up there with what I'm seeing. He probably has one in the office where he just, you know, the person sits in the chair, the automata pulls an arm (laughs) forward, plops it down on a tooth. Somewhere the front desk person, you know, taps the bell and it rips the tooth out of the head. And he comes by and (laughs) says, well, thank you, Mrs. Linda, for stopping by. It looks like we got that taken care of for you. You look great. He's played by Dick Van Dyke. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Where is the live action movie of this? Dang it. <laughs> it's probably got a couple musical numbers. Oh, if it doesn't, you're not doing it right. I mean, come on. It could be a whole musical number about airplane postal delivery. We could see Miss Eleanor dancing. I wonder if he also took drugs. I mean, the mommy's little helpers. Like, this feels like the perfect timing. For him just to be. I mean, I think he was just one of those people that was just so. Every project he was involved in was he wanted to help like the general public. He wanted to help humanity. He just went about it in such a weird way. Every project you've said feels like it is an improv show. (laughs) Where somebody reaches their hand into a hat and pulls out a word. It's like. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I need a word from the audience, and I'm going to team it up with the word in my hand. Bat. It's like oh. a Mad Libs. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and we're going to run with it. It's going to be great. So that that's my story of the bat bombs of World War II. Thank you so much for sharing it. You're it welcome. has brought joy and humor into my world. It has mine this whole week because I can't get over the idea of strap. Of of standing in a cave and thinking, ooh, you know what would be a great idea? Putting a tiny little bomb on this tiny little bat. You know, it's kind of up there. And I've been thinking about that scene in Scrooge where they're trying to attach the antlers to the mice. I have not seen that one yet. Bill Murray? Or... I know. What? Okay, know. so there is a scene and they have these mice and these antlers and they're saying like, you know, the, the antlers aren't staying on the mice's head, you know, because they've got like a little ribbon. And 
Bill Murray's like, just use staples. (laughs) (laughs) Just like scares the hell out of the other person. (laughs) He's the monster the world needs. You know, and so that's that's kind of what I've been thinking about this whole time. But I didn't necessarily want to say it because, you know, animal cruelty. And then at the very end, I couldn't hold it anymore. You know what? I think the whole thing, we're sorry to the bats of the world. and to the yeah. Mice yeah, just because some dentist doesn't see your, you know, if you're a bat and you're listening, we want <laughs> you to know that we see you. We see you. We hear you. Your feelings are valid. In fact. We want to pet the little spot right here. I know. Yeah, because you're cute. You didn't deserve to be strapped to a tiny incendiary device. But humans got a human. And we're sorry for our yeah, actions. That that is very true. Given we we will invent things because we can't not, apparently. No. I wanna know. I was thinking this the whole time because as soon as I read the story, Olga was like the first thing that came into my mind. I wanna know if he knew about her. And that's how the two got like made it into the same train brain train. I don't know. I mean, I feel like like TikTok has given Olga of Kiev a a very recent like uptick renaissance. Right. Like <laughs> I have seen so many, you know, creators talk about her and different and share different aspects of her life that it's just fascinating and just going like, oh, wow. To the point where I'm like, oh, yeah, Olga Kiev. Like I've known about her for like she was in my children's book next to Mother Goose. <laughs> yep. I felt that way since, excuse me, um, it was a couple years ago. When I can't remember if it was a podcast, I think it started out as a podcast that I listened to and then like had to, you know, immediately devour everything i could possibly find on her because freaking genius it look if you're gonna get angry you really need to do something channel that energy do something with it and she did sister did <laughs> if you guys don't know about olga Kiev, <laughs> i know enjoy she is a, a russian the wife of a russian oligarch who her husband is killed and the people who kill him uh the Drevlians. Yes, the Drevlians send her a letter like basically saying, like, hey, by the way, this happened. And um, yeah, as unfortunate as it is, maybe you would consider marrying our leader just as a peace offering. Be great. And she takes the messengers who have delivered this letter and she she kills them all. I think she takes them. How does she do it? Um, I think it's she- Oh, she, she there was the boat. They came in the boat. And so she, that was, uh, the, was that the, is that second the first time or the, the second first time? Because, because one time she locks him in the spa. Oh, and then burns down the spa. Then, then And then the boat. The next time she, they come in a boat and she says, send your finest soldiers so we can celebrate our, our union and digs a big hole, big enough for the boat, has her men pick up the boat with hit the Drevlians inside, carry the boat into the hole, throw the boat into the hole, and then proceed to bury them alive. Because that's what you do. Yeah, I mean, this was Olga of Kiev, and she just kept going in her reign And of the terror. Drevlians kept showing up because, fool me once! <laughs> I mean, she's gonna run out of anger at some point. I don't think so. Oh, I mean, she did find, she did, she did, you know, she did find Christianity. She found Jesus. Did she find Jesus or did she convert out of convenience? I mean, that's something we may never know. 
you know, I think either way it suits her. That's that's fair. I mean, she was canonized as a saint after going full Boudicca. So yeah, I feel like once you hear that like Jesus will forgive your your crimes <laughs> and you know what you've done, you're like, oh. So you're saying there's still a chance. <laughs> and if you are looking for another chance. <laughs> but on, on that Become note. A saint. <laughs> yeah. Um, on that note, I think we're going to, like, if you don't mind, if we could wrap up so I could go find my fun ice machine that cools my knee down because yeah. I have been away from it for far too long. I have missed That's my new friend. Nice. Does it have a name yet? No, it doesn't. I just... Mike, will you get me some ice? Darling. He, he goes, grabs another ice block, throws it in the machine. Really? It's a really cool machine. It's a machine that I strap to my knee and it pumps ice cold water all around it. So it stays colder than an ice pack for longer. I like it. You it's, go do that. Yeah. I've been told I have to get burritos. Good times. Yeah. So if you've enjoyed your time here on the Unhinged History podcast, and we'd love it if you would rate, review, subscribe so that we can be present and available for more of your friends. And we could end up creating a community of other people who go, oh, you know what you really need to hear about? You really need to hear about these bat bombs by this insane dentist because. <laughs> and these high school kids that worked as his intern. I oh mean, my like, God, it's like breaking bad, but bat bombs in World War II. Maybe Honestly, that does seem like the pilot. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, but also, if you if you realize that you've been trying to email us and for the last couple of episodes, I've given you the wrong email address. Lips. Um, <laughs> the correct email address is unhingedhistorypod at gmail.com. No dots. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I might have misspoke. But hey, I was good at it, right? I kept doing it. That's consistent. You know, when you walk in like you own the place, people are going to believe you. That's true. So on that note, we've enjoyed hanging out with you. Goodbye. Bye.